Hello, welcome to another edition of the FFI Practitioner Podcast. I'm Jordan Rich, and what better way to launch the new year than with a future nut? We're proud to present Falling in Love with the Future, a conversation with FFI's future nut, Mark Stevenson, and FFI board chair, Debbie Bing. First question is for Mark. You're a future nut. What does that mean? What do you do? What do I do? There's no job description for what I do, which is kind of why me and my friend Ed, who does a similar job, invented Future Nought. So there is a job title, Futurologist or Futurist, which we rather hate. Um, uh, and maybe it's important to explain why, and then I'll tell you what I think I do. Please. So, so when you think about the future or future studies, then you'll think about this idea of predicting the future. It turns out that human beings are really bad at predicting the future, like terribly, terribly, terribly bad at it. And the reason is because we're all too prejudiced, so we tend to predict things from within our frame of reference. Uh, we predict things that are emotionally or financially convenient to us. And if you look at the predictions made by futurists or industry analysts and experts, if you go back and examine them, they pretty much know better than random chance, really. Um, so uh, they make predictions that are wrong. Um, predictions are passive anyway where people will say to you, this is what your market's going to look like, this is what the world's going to look like. Um, so you just have to respond. And and my brand of futurism, if I have one, is really getting my clients to understand the big questions the future is asking us and then try and answer those questions well in the service of making the world more sustainable, more equitable, more humane, more just. So the way they invest, the way they recruit, the way they go about doing their business. Uh, because, you know, the, the world is in trouble. And um, so, so a future note is kind of like an astronaut. It's like you're kind of sailing into the future, but you don't know what's going to be there, but hopefully you've got the skills to navigate it in a way that means that not everybody dies. I like that optimistic outlook. And, and Mark, family businesses that comprise so many of the businesses across the globe have an mm -hmm. opportunity to make changes within their own structures, but for society. So it sounds like you're right on the cusp uh, with this particular organization of having an impact. Well, I hope so. I mean, if you look at world GDP, depending on which estimate you use, between 70 to 90% of it is family businesses. So if you wanted to be really extreme, you could argue that 70 to 90% of the problems we're in, we're in whether that's climate change or uh, inequality or retreat to democracy, um, it largely lays at, uh, at their feet. Because in the, the, you know, the mindset we live in is that commerce drives everything. Now, family businesses are very interesting because on the one hand, because they are not subject to, say, the vagaries of the market and, and corporates and uh, institutional shareholders and whatever. They can do more bold and interesting things. But by the same token, they're also uh, not open to as much scrutiny. So they can say they're doing good things, but often they're not. And when it comes to things like sustainability mm -hmm. and working practices, you find some pretty ugly stuff in some family mm -hmm. businesses that claim to be something they're not. Um, there are some, of course, some very, very progressive ones. So, so they're a huge economic engine. They employ you know, a staggering amount of people. Um, without them, we can't fix the problems we've got, particularly the climate change problem. So um, so they need to step up for their own sake and the rest of ours. Debbie, you've no doubt taken the pulse of many of the members and many of the people you work with and represent. What are some of the issues that Mark is talking about that might be at top of mind for, for some of these family business representatives? I, I imagine he's hitting a chord, but what have your members told you? So I guess a couple of things. One is that um, I think family businesses uh, want to be time travelers by their very definition. 
they're living both in the past and the present and thinking about a future for those that are really working on the continuity question. You know, while many believe they can predict the future and discover again and again that they're they're wrong about that, um, that sense of being able to really harness thinking out ahead of where you are is something that they're continuously trying to do across a number of dimensions. And if we as advisors and those that study family businesses can get better at that muscle of sort of grappling with the kinds of questions Mark tees up and thinking out ahead of where you are, it fits the road that family families are walking on. Um, it fits our ability to really help them walk along that road. That's one. I think the other issue that continues to come up People come to this field, and I count families and also those that advise them in this, many because they are purpose and impact driven. And they define that in many ways. And Mark is right to sort of be provocative in saying that there are many that can do better. I totally agree. And um, there's something to work with there because people, I think, are doing this work because there are values that drive their beliefs. Those things are in the mix and the kinds of decisions people are making about philanthropy, about business, about continuity in their own families. Mark, how do you convince someone listening to this or someone checking out the work you're doing? How do you convince them that they matter when it comes to, say, environmental sustainability? Uh, Well, they don't and they do. So Gandhi said it best, what you do will be insignificant, but it's really important that you do it. This is a systemic problem. You know, if you were an alien looking at this planet from outer space, you'd have to sort of conclude, you know, you'd be sat down on the deck of your spaceship. So you had this ability to examine the human economy and you turn to the your first mate and go, what are they doing? You turn to your Spock and say, what are, what, what are they doing? And Spock would turn around and go, well, it appears, Captain, that what they are doing is turning a massive environmental uh, degradation into short-term profit for a very few of the born lucky. And that would be a summary of our planet at the moment. They would also go, so what they're doing is essentially punching a hole in their own spaceship. That makes no sense. The operating system upon which all family businesses works is the environment. And if you destroy the operating system, you destroy any opportunity of your family business um, prospering in the future. And so it's it's enlightened self-interest. But the point is that everybody works in their little silos. And this is a, a problem that knows no boundaries. And so what you do will be insignificant, but it's really important that all of us do it. But as to how you convince people, everybody knows this, right? It's not a difficult thing to understand. But everybody knows they should get down the gym and, uh, you know, have a healthy diet and not drink too much, you know. But very few people actually, you know, look in amazing shape. All of us know how to be in amazing shape. Most of us aren't because, uh, you know, so it's not a knowledge problem, right? None of these things are knowledge problems. They're, they're cultural and they're emotional problems. And that people make these excuses like, well, I'm not going to do it because they're not doing it. There's no point in us doing something because China's not doing enough, in my opinion. Often they're, they're very misinformed. So they dress up um, their cynicism as wisdom. Hmm. And that's a very ugly and unhappy place to be. So how do you get people to really change? You have to talk to the heart and the emotions to get them to really feel it. And um, I have a side career in the arts as a comedy writer, a playwright, and a an occasional stand-up comedian and musician as well. And what you're doing there all the time is working out how, what is the emotional content of this that people will engage with? So you can tell a joke about something and people will laugh at the joke and thank you for relieving them of the cognitive dissonances at the heart of the punchline. Whereas if you told them those, those facts straight, they would have punched you in the face and told you to leave. So it's finding the, we're all conflicted. We all feel massively complicit and somehow helpless in the face of this societal challenge that we face at the moment, which is fixing the planet that we we're breaking. I mean, if you were to take the uh, earth, right? The earth has been around for 46 million years. If we made that 46 hours, it means that the human race has been on it, on it for four hours. No, or I think 
Um, and in those four hours, we've destroyed half the world's forests, for instance. Mm. Yeah, this is clearly a ridiculous way about doing things. But how do you make people engage that emotionally? And that, that's that's the big challenge. So it's not knowledge, it's emotion. And too much of the way we go about things is by trying to convince people with facts. And facts get absolutely nowhere. Mark could have been talking about any number of subjects that we face in the world of family business, right? That it, It's about harnessing the emotions and facts are useful, but at the end of the day, don't don't matter. <laughs> so I think another thing that I'm, you know, provoked by in this conversation is there's a there's a lot to continue to learn about how to sort of be able to convene those kinds of conversations at these tables, right? Where there's there's enormous persuasive work to do uh, to even have the conversation be about the right thing. Um, many next generations, I'm sure, would be listening to this, thinking, "Oh, thank goodness, can he come talk to my." dad or my grandmother yeah. <laughs> you know finally there's a way to way to get into this yeah i mean the, the i have this mantra i live by which is that the brain does the public relations to what the heart has already decided <laughs> i love it um and so we have to we have to work out what the emotional content uh, of any journey is and realize that some people are way behind it the pandemic has been life-altering for most everyone in most every country. Do you sense there's a change in how people feel about themselves in the present and in the future? And is the messaging we're talking about more likely to get through now that we've been living through this pandemic? At the beginning of the pandemic, um, uh, I was asked, you know, how, do you think this is going to change things? And I said, tell me how long it goes on for. I said, if it goes on for six months, we actually get a vaccine that cures everybody in six months, then not much will change. I said, if it goes on for a couple of years, then it's going to really get into people's souls. And that's where you get real change. And it has had a fundamental change, um, not with everybody, not to the degree that I would like, but certainly I'm now seeing organizations, whether that's governments or corporations or NGOs, willing to think very differently. Um, you know, I think it's Warren Buffett's famous quote, when, uh, when the tide goes out, you find it has been swimming naked. <laughs> so the tide went out on humanity. And suddenly we got, everybody got a, le a lesson in case, I guess my specialism really, which is systems thinking and interdependence and interconnectedness. And they all realized that, you know, well, the healthcare system is connected to the economy, which is connected to the guy who delivers my food, which is connected mm. to the food chain, which is connected to biodiversity, which is connected, connected to pandemics, which is connected to, the, connected to the way we value things, which is connected to the way we govern things. Uh, Philip K. Dick said, reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away. And suddenly we all got a view of what reality is. I um, mean, if you look at the origins of the word apocalypse, actually, the word is not a destruction, it's a drawing back of the veil, a revealing of the truth. And so we've had this apocalypse, a drawing back of the truth. Now, if some people have responded to this you know, this mirror we've been held up, you know, which is COVID, basically a mirror given, held up to humanity and says, this is what you're doing. And, and the pandemic is a, is a function of, of, of the biodiversity problem. Um, and there's two ways of looking into mirror. One is as, uh, as Narcissus, which is, I'm fine, I'm beautiful. We just have to ride this storm and everything will get back to normal and people want my products or whoever I am and I can just, I just get through it. It's not a very useful way of thinking about it. Narcissus ended up killing himself because he couldn't have his own reflection. Um, the other way is there's catharsis. You look in the mirror and go, wow, I need to change. You know, I need to get in the gym or this haircut's not suiting me, whatever it is. And so a lot of people, I think, have had a catharsis. And I've seen this in CEOs. I've seen this in military officers. One of the things that I've been involved with through the pandemic is, is, is stimulating the world's military forces to think about an international peace, security, and climate declaration where they basically say climate change is our biggest uh, threat, national security threat to each one of us, but it knows no boundaries. So we better start working on peace so that we can work together against the, this threat, which is our job as soldiers to protect our citizens. Um, that would never have happened before the pandemic, but it's probably going to be signed next year. I'm on an ethics board of uh, one company came to me, huge hospitality, family owned business, huge family owned hospitality business at the beginning of the pandemic. So what are we going to do? They've gone from you know, millions of revenues a week to nothing. 
And I said, use the time to think about what you're only going to do, because this is just, this is a symptom of the world we're in. And they've now committed to being the world's first regenerative hospitality business in the world, where they'll mm. put more back into the economies that they work in, in terms of money and value, and more back into the environment in terms of carbon and biodiversity than they take out. And, I, and they've just asked me off the ethics and governance board to help them do that. Again, that sort of thinking wasn't there before, but, but people have judged me as going, you know what, I am done with the old lie. I am done with having a salary that's bribery rather than reward. Bribery to forget about the fact that the, the system I'm in is complicit with destroying, destroying mm. my own future, my own children's future. You know, and that doesn't matter whether you work in a family business or a bank or a government. A lot of people have just gone enough. Uh, it hasn't happened as much as we want. It hasn't happened with everybody, but certainly, I have seen huge amounts of shifts in every sphere, whether it's NGOs, whether it's investment houses, whether it's, as I say, boards of family, family-owned businesses, or whatever. So, so the the thing is, I think for the next five years, we've got a window to kind of ride that. Um, you know, the old forces will always come back and try and pull you back to where they were because they're very well funded. But we've got this really wonderful window of opportunity, which is next year, as me as future not with the FFI. Debbie, we'd love your thoughts as well. I think the pandemic has fundamentally um, changed a lot of the way I think we see families working with each other in ways that have surprised me. And I've been at this a long time in a couple of ways. First of all, the pace of change is accelerated. Often, oftentimes in these multi-generational families, it's generations to change something, if at all, right? It's not even on the table. We've seen families who have said, for example, I'll stay at my desk in this role till I die. I will pass on ownership only after that. Suddenly say, I've got to make plans for the next month mm. and make it happen because the sense of mortality and that something could, could we don't have the control that we think we have has put people in touch with the need to move more quickly in ways that have been surprising. Um, I think it's also really brought to the fore the importance of legacy, which is always a part of the way that families think about their impact on each other and on the world. And I've seen really lively conversations on parallel to some that I've seen before about people asking the questions in a visceral, real way, like this could be next year. What will I want my children or grandchildren to say I've I've contributed that that suddenly feels um, quite present because of how challenged we've been. People have changed their businesses on a dime. So I think there's a readiness for new thinking and a pace of change that surprised even me. And, you know, we're not through the pandemic, right? It it continues in its new form. So I think um, right or for worse, it's got staying power. And while that's not what we may like to see from a perspective of the world and health and safety, um, let's harness it and, and you know, use thinkers like Mark and our own skills to help people really face questions faster and deeper and more productive ways. So I right. think it's a real opportunity moment, a perfect time for us to be working with Mark. Before we wrap things up, Mark, uh, if we wanted to all be junior future knots, what you do is so inspiring and interesting. What can we do as lay people to try to capture some of this essence? Well, I, I think it's unfair to paint me as any different than anybody else. I mean, I think it might have been Stephen Pinker who said that we shouldn't be called Homo sapiens, the wise ape. We should be called Homo futuro, the, the ape that thinks about the future. Because actually every single one of us is a futurist to a degree. Though we're the only animal that thinks, you know, beyond next season really we can we can imagine what we might be like when we when we grow up like i want to be an astronaut or, or what or the, you know just talking about what my what's my legacy going to be i need to think about a future after i'm here now, most animals don't do that in any way shape or form so we're all futurists but um this i think there's a, f- a few things that are important one is 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 to find the questions that you need to ask yourself don't be guided by directions of tra- uh, directions of travel or destinations find yourself a good question 
that'll keep you occupied and that'll keep you happy and interested. And how do I solve this problem? Um, also, when you also make sure you're engaging with the world as it is. So Edward Abbey always said, better a cruel truth than a comfortable delusion. So you better know where you're starting from. If you're starting from a delusional place of I'm all right and everything's going to be fine and the world's going to be great, then you're going to be part of the problem. But what I have found in all the work I do is that when you engage properly with a problem that you've previously been scared about engaging with because it's too big or it's too complex or it's too frightening or you feel that you're complicit in it and you become informed about it, then suddenly you see we have an agency to do something about it. So engaging with the problems is actually a release from some of the cognitive dissonance and some of the emotional load that comes with them. Because in the work I do, it's not about like, it's broken. It's like, it's broken. Let's see how broken it is. Okay, how did it get that broken? Okay, okay. How do you fix it? And that last bit is like where you go, oh. So I started this journey feeling, you know, that the whole world was broken, nothing I can do about it. And I've come out at the end of it going, hey, there's something for me to do. I've got a, mm. a life to live. I've got a purpose to to guide myself. And you know, in one way, you could look at the times we're in, which are extraordinary, as possibly the most exciting time ever to be alive. If you've got talents and gifts, then we have the biggest problem humanity has ever faced to solve. Get to it. We need you and have mm. fun while you're doing it. That's empowering, no question. And I think it means a lot to the younger members of the family businesses coming up as idealistic as their previous generations were then. And Debbie, would you again tell the audience, and they'll hear a lot more about this during the year, about MIT in October of 2022 and the role that Mark will have and you know what people can expect from FFI? Yeah, so in October of 2022, we'll be holding our global conference at MIT in partnership with MIT and really grappling with questions about the future and the economy and how we need to think differently about our field and our world. And um, we expect really exciting papers and really exciting discussions where people are thinking differently about their, their work and each other. And Mark will be a big part of that in a bunch of different ways to help push our thinking. Mark, we want to thank you for today, but also for uh, for the exciting work that you're doing. And despite all the challenges, there's so much available to us now. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things to say is that we have to fall back in love with the future. We have to imagine that it can be better. At the moment, the current narrative is that I've got to look after myself in a dystopian nightmare. And unless we're prepared to fall back in love with the possibility of the future, then then, then we're, we're all in trouble. We've got to dream, you know. Um, I like to joke that Martin Luther King didn't stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and say, I have a plan. You know, he inspired people by painting what the future could be like. In fact, all his speeches were like that. He's probably the best futurist there ever was. He'd, he'd tell you what was wrong. He'd tell you how ridiculous it was. And then he'd show you what it would be like when we fixed it. And you've got to fall in love with that. And then once you fall in love with that, it'll go into your heart, which is what I talked about. And when, and when it's in your heart, it can go down to your stomach, which means it's in your gut. And then it can go into your soul. Then it's who you are. And by the way, people who are passionate about the future and believe it can be made better and are doing something about it, those are the people you want to have sex with. You're going to have more sex and go to better parties, have better cocktails with more interesting people if you get on the right side of history. Well, that's what I call a ringing endorsement. You got everybody's attention with that three-letter word. Debbie and Mark, thank you both for joining me on the podcast and good luck in the future. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you to both of our wonderful guests for a great conversation. For more on the FFI conference at MIT this coming October, visit ffi.org. There you can submit proposals or register for early bird rates. For more on Mark Stevenson, author of An Optimist's Tour of the Future and We Do Things Differently, visit his website, markstevenson.org. 
To listen to other podcasts, read more articles in FFI Practitioner, or submit one of your own, go to ffipractitioner.org. I'm Jordan Rich. Thanks for listening.